take a moment to consider all the factors that impact your health. What comes to mind? Your diet, perhaps your lifestyle, like whether you exercise, drink, or smoke. Maybe you thought about your family history of diseases like cancer or diabetes. But health and well-being go beyond that. The field of public health is about thinking broader, thinking beyond the individual, about how our built environment affects us, how laws and policies impact us, and how the social forces influence our behavior and well-being. Each week, this podcast will discuss one topic from the wonderful world of public health to reveal these ubiquitous hidden forces and artifacts. One episode at a time, we will show how public health is all around us. Welcome to Everything is Public Health. Everything is Public Health. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So today, something a little bit different. It is another installment of MJ's oversimplified and overdramatized theater. So... Wait, wait, wait. We need to do a better introduction than that. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah. On today's episode, we have another installment of MJ's overly simplified and overly dramatized theater. Welcome. Welcome all. Have you read The Tale of Two Cities? I've never read The Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, of course I've read The Tale of Two Cities. So I'm not sure how apt this analogy is because I've never read the book, but we'll roll with it. But just like very quick, what is the tale of two cities about? It's about two cities, uh, Paris and London before. Oh, it's not people. It's two cities. (laughs) Yes, it's about two cities. Well, I mean, it's about people, but it's in London and Paris before and during the French Revolution. Is it not about like one person lives in one city, another person lives in another city, and like they swap places? Swap places. I thought it's about like two boys and they grew up in two different cities and they, they met later in life. That could be a movie plot I'm remembering, but anyway. <laughs> so today's story is a tale of two elements, specifically their uh, ion counterparts. Like, so iodine, iodide, fluorine, and fluoride. So these are cousins. On the periodic table, they're both halogen, which is in group 17, right next to the noble gases. Um, so can you can you kind of picture where they are on the periodic table? Yeah, I'm a nerd. I know exactly where they are in the periodic table. <laughs> so they're both halogens. And so they're the way that periodic tables are organized, when you go down a column, they get heavier, but they're relatively, quote unquote, similar in terms of chemical activity. And that's why they're called, they're in the same family. So that's why things in... The column tend to have similar properties. So noble gases, they tend to have very similar properties, even though they're different elements. So the same thing with fluorine and iodine, or we're talking about their ion counterparts today. And both of them are important to our health in different ways. Both played a major role in the history of public health. So we're briefly going to talk about what both of those do. Uh, what do you know about iodine? So iodine is in salt, and it has something to do with preventing goiters, which has something to do with your thyroid. Yes, you are completely correct. 10 points. Ding, 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 ding. So they are essential minerals. I don't know if you can call iodine a mineral because it's not exactly a metal, but they're they're essential stuff that we need for our body. So they're important to our endocrine system. Specifically, we need iodine to make thyroid hormones and thyroid hormones regulate our metabolism. And for children, especially developing children, they are even more important because thyroid hormones impact intellectual development. So if you have iodine deficiency that could really impact children especially infants and in adults it's also bad because it causes this thing called the greater which basically your thyroid expands and have you seen pictures of goiters yeah so it can get so bad where it looks like people have like large grapefruits in their neck yeah it kind of looks like a tumor like that's how big it can get if you have a severe enough iodine deficiency it's not a tumor it's not a tumor basically Iodine deficiency, really bad, especially for children, but also bad for adults. Fluoride 
the slightly lighter cousin of the halogen family, is important to our dental health. In short, fluoride strengthens your enamel through a very complicated chemical process that I'm not going to go into. And when you strengthen your enamel, it prevents cavities. And there's a reason why you can find fluoride in toothpaste. Yay. Yes. <laughs> so the fluoride we're concerned today is the fluoridation of drinking water. So in our water supplies, which we have pretty good evidence that it prevents cavities specifically in children. The evidence for adults is similar, but the effect is a lot more reduced and the evidence is more mixed. But in children, we have pretty good evidence that fluoridated water prevents cavities because it strengthens children's teeth enamel. So that's your brief intro into the two elements that we're going to talk about today. Iodine, the heavier one, and fluoride, the lighter one. Fluoride is for your teeth. Iodine is for thyroid hormones, which is important for our health. So let's start with the heavier of the two elements, iodine. Back in the days, and this is true for a lot of things, not just iodine. Back in the days, your iodine intake is pretty much determined by where you lived because food was localized or everything was localized. Back in the days, there's no global food delivery, international trade infrastructure. Right. We didn't have a, a mass transportation infrastructure to move food around the country. Yeah. So literally, you could the tomato you get in New York is going to be the tomato. It's going to be a different tomato type of tomato that you get in, I don't know, Texas, right? Because everything was so localized. Right. Based on the soil, the water, everything, it's you know sort of dependent upon where you are. Right. And nowadays, we could buy like, I don't know, oranges from California, even though we live in Baltimore. But back in the days, your food is pretty much localized. Delicious oranges. Delicious oranges. I love California oranges. So as a result, there are places where there's no iodine deficiency because they live in a place that has iodine naturally. And there are places where they don't have iodine. You get this thing called the greater belt, which is around the Great Lakes, in the Appalachians, and in the Pacific Northwest. Greater belt. Greater, what did I say? Greater with a G-R. You said greater. Greater. Oh, there's no R. That's right. Goiter. Greater belt. Well, there is an R, but it's not till the end. That's right. Greater belt. <laughs> so you get this thing called the greater belt. Uh, which is in those regions, and those regions don't have a lot of naturally occurring iodine. So you get a lot of iodine deficiencies in those regions, some of them worse than others. So some of them you might just have like greater issues, endemic greater issue. Oh, that's a term we have to define. So how would you define endemic? So something that's endemic, it's something that has sort of become expected in a geographic region or in a particular population. It's sort of just become almost status quo to be there. Right. In those regions, you have endemic goiters or endemic iodine deficiency because the iodine was not naturally occurring in those areas. And the more serious issue, though, like I've mentioned before, is for infants because iodine is important for development, both intellectual development and just like physical development. So this is obviously a huge public health issue that they're trying to fix. And they discovered that iodine supplements can be extremely helpful. That makes sense. It's a deficiency. You give them whatever they're deficient in, and it helps. Sure. And they initially thought about a medical intervention because that tends to be the impulse. So we'll just give iodine supplements in terms of a drip or in terms of a pill to these families. But it quickly dawned on them that this is going to be an incredibly expensive and labor-intensive process. Well, and how do you make sure that you're reaching everyone that you know? How do you make sure that people are adhering to the pills, the drips, whatever they are? Yeah, exactly. Putting it into something that people use every day is a far simpler solution. And this is where the magic of public health comes in. Like we think about something that's broad. And so how do we get iodine into everyone's diet in like a very simple way? And they came up with salt. So the salt idea came from iodized salt that they use for livestock and animals. And they just said, okay, if it works for livestock and animal, I'm pretty sure we can re-engineer it in a way that works for humans. So that's where we get the concept of iodized salt. From here, 
if you were in charge of a public health iodization salt project, what would you do? I would probably reach out to legislators, the FDA, whoever, and say, hey, we know this is a problem. We have something that works, the solution. And so we should require that all salt has iodine in it. Exactly. You're thinking like a public health person because both you and I know that if we just go to the salt manufacturers, they're not going to budge. Not always. There, there can be pushback, right? Like what is the incentive for them to change their product? There has to be some reason they would want to do it. Either it's regulation or policy or it's a loss of market share. Right. So those are sort of two ways that they can be motivated. Yeah. So when the team first approached salt manufacturers, obviously they were pushed back because they were concerned about the extra costs that this would mean. And also, I mean, you're asking an industry to change their behavior. It's it's going to you're going to get some resistance. You're going to get some pushback. So naturally, the public health people say, well, obviously, we need to go the legislative route. We need to enact some sort of broad regulation that can encourage, quote unquote, encourage these like salt manufacturers to start putting iodized salt on the market. Because it's a very cheap, relatively cheap and efficient way to get iodine into everyone's diet. Now, this is where the interesting part comes in. The salt manufacturer got scared because they are worried that the public health people, like public health people do, they will enact a strict regulation, which means that they will be forced to make only unrefined salt. So salt, unrefined salt naturally have iodine in them, but they look very ugly. That's the best way to put it. They don't look like the nice, flaky, pure white salt that people are used to. So they're worried that... The little granules that we put on our table, yeah, right? They're a little gray. They're very ugly. They look. They don't look refined. So the salt manufacturer got scared and say, oh, if they are successful in their legislative push, maybe they'll enact a very strict regulation and we will be forced to only make unrefined salt, which we know people might not like. So basically, the threat of regulation encouraged the salt manufacturers to start iodizing their salt like just voluntarily, because they're afraid that the strict regulation would hurt them more in the long run. Well, it was a, a combination of things, right? So there was the potential threat of legislation, but hadn't the Morton Salt Company already started iodizing their salt because they were located in sort of the Great Lakes region and had been working with public health researchers testing the effectiveness. And so then people were like, oh, this works. Right. So- Yes, you're exactly right. And Morton was actually in the very initial stage, they were like very vocally resistant. But as the public health people started working with them, and as the public health people starting to plan out their strategy, they were the first one to like start adapting this. And uh, they quickly found out that fortunately, it wasn't super expensive to iodize salt. Uh, it was not like a huge overhaul of their process. So this is one of the public health success case because they didn't just go the legislative route. They had like a multi-prong approach. They did a lot of educational campaigns to both salt manufacturers and the public. They did a lot of marketing campaigns and they worked directly with the salt manufacturers saying that, hey, you know, this is not that hard of a process. We're, we're doing, we, we did uh, studies and Morton is already doing this. And the most important piece that they preemptively planned an epidemiological study to study the effect of iodized salt on an area on greater goiter rates in an area. So they have very quickly have a lot of data say, yep, the goiters are going away if you have iodized salt in the area. So, I mean, this is a classic case of the type of multidimensional strategy plan that public health people need to do in order for this to be an effective strategy. I really like this as an example of public health. As you said, it was multifaceted. They didn't try just one thing and expect that that was going to be the solution. They 
worked with the manufacturers. They had model legislation. They sort of, they covered as many bases as they could. They had data, right? They'd been doing educational and marketing campaigns. And so when things were ready to roll out, they really hit the ground running because they, from the public health perspective, had anticipated and planned for all of these potential factors that they needed to address. Yeah. And I wanted to focus on the marketing and the educational aspect of things because what they did was, I think, a little genius. So what do you think? Like when you think of an iodization education campaign, what do you think the content was? Uh, eat more salt. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, I, I didn't, I was like, what do you, how do you, they educate people? But it turns out what they focused on, and this is the genius part, they focused on iodized salt as the new hot scientific food instead of medicine. That was the big thing that they were pushing. Like this is food scientific food this is not medicine that makes sense and that is genius because people are more acceptable of new food because the term medicine has a lot of you know for for a lack of a better term negative connotations associated with it yeah people can be concerned about how was the medicine developed who was it tested on how long has it been around but food like i have food in my refrigerator i have food in my cupboard food makes sense like that's not something scary and medical or anything like that yeah and this was the era where like hot scientific food was like all the rage. So like fortified bread or fortified, you know, they, they were fortifying a lot of things in this era. And it was like branded as like a, a hot new scientific thing. So that was what the marketing and education campaign was doing. And it worked. Back in the day when people respected science <sighs> and would listen yeah. to what scientists had to say on the yeah, issue. Yeah, surely it doesn't change after that. <laughs> Those were the days. But yeah, so it was a huge success and they eventually other salt manufacturers kind of just voluntarily follow suit because they realize that it's not a super expensive process and they realize that if they don't do this, they're going to lose out market shares because people are like readily uptaking this. There was some resistance as always with public health stuff, you get some resistance, but eventually it iodized salt just became the norm in the industry because it was again a very successful now, here's the slightly sad news to the story. Because it was so successful, the industry adopted it, they couldn't pass any legislation because they kind of don't have to. So no no legislation was passed. I don't think that's sad. Right. Yeah, I don't think that's a sad part. I think that's public health at its finest. You don't have to rely on regulation or policy. You can work with manufacturers. You can present the evidence. People vote with their money, right? As we've talked about before, they buy the products that they want. And then other companies like, oh, I don't want to be tardy to the party and miss the train. So I'm going to hop on and iodize my salt too. And I think anytime we can get voluntary standards put in place that are market standards, right? Like people are opting into something so that it changes the entire market in a way that benefits the population. That's a success. That is a success. Yeah. And iodized salts are very common now. So one thing I will say, there's no legislative thing that came from this, but there is a one thing that is like a slight encouragement, which is the FDA, right? Do they regulate food? Yeah. So the FDA. It is the Food and Drug Administration. Oh, that's what the, it's not federal drug. It's food and drug. That's right. <laughs> I was like, what does the F stand for? Um, so the FDA, they the only incentive is that they allow salt to be labeled as this salt supplies iodide, a necessary nutrient, and this salt does not supply iodine, a necessary nutrient. And you can imagine that that label is very powerful. The wording of that label is very powerful. And then naturally, people want something that's necessary. So that's the only legislative thing, quote unquote, legislative thing that came from it. Yeah, a nice part of regulatory action there. But honestly, I think at this point, it's so widespread. Like, 
I like I I don't even think about the fact that there's iodine in salt now. Yeah, you can't taste it. I, yeah, I don't. I mean, it just it just is. It's a thing. It's like you know, there are airbags in cars and there are seatbelts in cars, right? Like those are things that we didn't we didn't start there, but that's where we ended up now to the point where like most people don't even think about putting on a seatbelt when they drive. It's like most people don't even think about whether there's iodine in their salt. That's like a public health thing that flies under the radar. Yeah, public health success. And obviously the iodine deficiency, just it's not overnight, but pretty much over time, just it was just not an issue in America anymore because of iodine salt. So that's the tale of iodine. Fluoride, on the other hand, went through a totally different process, and its story is a lot more tragic and a lot more tumultuous. So it's another element, an ion, the same family, the halogen family. And again, how much fluoride you got depends entirely on where you lived back then because it was in the water it was in the soil it's a naturally occurring element but some places just didn't have as much of it some places had a lot of it and as a result your dental health is kind of dependent on where you lived because some places just had more fluoride some places has less fluoride makes sense the initial research on fluoride is because of this thing called dental fluorosis so too much fluoride is bad for your teeth uh, i'm not going to go into why but just too much fluoride is bad for your teeth. It causes staining on your teeth. It causes, sometimes it makes your teeth like disfigured, but too much fluoride is bad for your teeth. So, but through this research of investigating why some places have these weird stainings and weird, like weird shaped teeth and uncovering dental fluorosis, they uncovered uh, through part of this research effort that low concentration of fluoride in water prevents tooth decay in children. So it prevents cavities in children. So that was kind of the, the side discovery that happened when they did research about dental fluorosis. So too much is bad, a little bit is good. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. So as a result, this is another public health issue because, uh, I mean, even today, Americans don't have the greatest teeth. So back then is the same issue. Like dental health was a serious issue, a serious public health issue. Well, and dental health can impact other health issues as well, like those relationships between oral health and heart disease. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in general, like quality of life depends on how good your teeth are. Like people don't really think about this, but dental health is like super important to like just overall Man, health. Imagine like trying to eat corn on the cob or dig into like chicken wings or beef jerky, like all sorts of the delicious things. If you don't have good oral health, that can be challenging. Yeah, exactly. It's, it impacts your quality of life. So I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you for iodine. If you are a public health person and this finding just came in, like fluoridated water is great for preventing cavities in children. The data on adults is a little mixed, but it's good for preventing cavities in children. How would you approach this? I would go to the agency that regulates water standards and ask them to put into place a regulation that has a certain concentration, a safe low dose concentration of fluoride in the water. Yeah. So this is essentially what they did. They went to different cities. They conducted this huge study where they essentially had some cities fluoridate their water, some cities who have naturally occurring fluoride and some city with no naturally occurring fluoride. And just they just did lots of widespread epidemiological studies, found a lot of good data. And eventually they were able to use this data to convince more and more cities to start to fluoridate their water supplies. But there were a lot of pushback. Like we're talking about court cases, like people were suing the cities and people were like not happy about fluorid fluoridating water. And this is sort of a sharp difference from the story of iodine. And then I don't completely know why, why there was so much pushback. There was one of the reasons that I found interesting that this is during the Cold War. And a lot of people were thinking fluoridated water was like a communist plot to weaken conspiracy American children. Theories. Yeah, a lot of conspiracies. Yeah. And I don't know why, why there was so much pushback compared to iodine. And this is kind of what I want to explore with you. 
I wonder if it has something to do with, so if I'm remembering correctly, there aren't substantial harmful effects if you have too much iodine, right? Like not having enough is very harmful, but if you if you have too much iodine, like it's not it's not a, a really bad thing. But with fluoride, if you don't have enough, it's it's not good. But also if you have too much, it's not good. And so it's not quite the same clear benefit, you know, like, oh, just just eat this thing or just, you know, have this um, mineral, whatever, and it's going to help you. I don't think it's quite as clear cut as iodine was, which anytime that there is potential harms that are evidenced by data, people are going to grasp onto that and sort of think about the worst case scenarios. Right. And one of the things I think the iodine group did really well was the education campaign of framing iodine as a food. And I guess you can't really do that here. Like, how do you, how would you, if you can go back in time and you were the public health spearhead that was pushing for this, like, how would you frame this? I guess I would try to frame it in some way as improving our water to improve our health. So, like, rather than thinking about it being an additive to water, while it is, there's also water sources that naturally have it. And so, how can we improve everyone's water supply to make sure that they don't have negative oral health? outcomes. But it's it's way harder, like even, you know, off the top of my head, I'm struggling a little bit. Whereas like, yeah, eat this food. This is something you have in your house all the time. You eat this all the time. So like, and also I think when you look at people, you don't always see the oral health of somebody, right? Like unless you're like actively talking with them, you, that's not, a, but like a goiter is like a big redacted thing that grows off of your throat. And that can be, you know, that could make people feel very uncomfortable, understandably. And so I think it's a little bit of a different visual. Yeah. And I think one of the things that they didn't do that I think was a good contrast to the iodine efforts is that they didn't really work with the community. They didn't really work with in terms of marketing and education. They sort of just like went to cities, showed them the data and the cities just did it if the city agreed. And as a result, there were a lot of. Yeah, that's never effective. <laughs> yeah. So much so that it's there were cases. I don't think anything went to the Supreme Court of the United States, but there were a lot of state Supreme Court cases where people were like trying to get fluoride out of their water. And some places succeeded. They Some places succeeded in removing fluoride fluoridation of drinking water. And the pushback was so, so great that eventually it led to the creation of the Safe Drinking Water Act that essentially made this a state issue. So it used to be, it could have been a federal issue, but it's it preempted, this act preempted and say, nope, this is a state issue now. Federal government have no roles in it. And it made the EPA strictly focus on safety. So it, previously, the EPA had authority to focus on health effects. So fluoridated water would have fallen into that category but now with this safe drinking water act it said nope epa can only focus on safety yeah so which means that they couldn't regulate things that were like additive to improve health they can only focus on things that would have oh this would be detriment to health if this was present in drinking water so as a result the federal effort or just effort to fluoridate water sort of just plateaued and sort of dipped a bit but there are other things that have fluoride in it right like toothpaste mouthwash so there are there are some other ways that people can get fluoride. Mm -hmm. But when we think about safety, it's very hard in my mind thinking from a public health perspective to separate safety and health. So I get what you're saying about not having additives to improve health. But if you think about the safety of drinking water, if you have an appropriate level of fluoride, it is safe. Yeah. And it exists in other places. So like it's sort of counterintuitive yeah, to just say not every place. right. Like, oh it's so it's safe for fluoride to be in water 
in place A because it's natural, but it's not safe for it to be in place B because it's added, even though they may be at the same level and accomplishing the same concentration. Thing. Yeah, I just think that's that's not a, a great public health perspective. No, because like you mentioned, like there are naturally occurring fluoride in certain cities, but people are not fretting about that. People are fretting when the fluoride is added into the drinking water. That's where most of the pushback comes from. So I will, before we end this, I will add a caveat, which is uh, the evidence for fluoridated water is definitely not as definitive as iodine. And there has been a lot of concerns. So a lot of these concerns and pushback, they also don't have good scientific evidence either. It's like all the scientific evidence against fluoride are very inconclusive, whereas we have pretty good evidence that it does prevent cavities in children. So the evidence is not as definitive as the iodine deficiency evidence. And also another argument that these quote-unquote anti-fluoridation water advocates, quote-unquote, are using is that toothpaste is now widely used. So they're arguing that we don't need fluoridated water because there's fluoride in toothpaste, which that argument, I think, makes the most sense of all the arguments I've seen. But still, like, there's a difference between... I think this is where, like, our public health mindset is so different than what most people have, is that it's not about you, every individual, go buy toothpaste. It's more about we have a very cheap way to make this available to everyone. Why not do that? Iodine pills or iodized salt? Yeah, it comes back to something I've talked about injury prevention, but it applies to public health also, which is like, if you can make the safest thing, or in this case, the most beneficial thing, the easiest thing, then you're going to have a bigger impact. So putting iodine in salt had a broader reach than giving certain people tablets. Right. Putting fluoride in water would have a broader reach than making sure that everybody buys toothpaste with fluoride. And also it's just cheaper. Toothpaste is not cheap, or at least compared to fluoridating water. It's not cheap. No, I mean, the like the nice <laughs> toothpaste, like it, it can be expensive. Yeah, it's just another product, I guess, whereas fluoridated water is just there. But anyway, so that is today's episode of MJ's Overly Simplified and Overly Dramatized Theater. I would say it was simple. I wouldn't say overly simplified. It was simple. It wasn't It wasn't all that dramatic other than your <laughs> your launch uh, on the Tale of Two Cities, uh, which I think it, it sort of fit, right? You have, you have two things on the periodic, two elements on the periodic table that got handled very differently, although they both have public health benefits. So I, I think it's good. I, I, I was expecting you to be far more dramatic than you actually were. So first of all, I, I will say that fluoride had a lot of history, like a lot of like resistance and that I just, maybe I'll say that for a bonus. Maybe, yeah. You know, we, if you get too spicy, it just ends up in a bonus episode. So maybe we'll, we'll save some of that for a hot take. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about the wonderful, omnipresent essence of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As always, keep an ear out on Mondays for bonus content. Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we miss an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. 
You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. And if you're interested in seeing some of my delicious gluten-free baking creations, you can follow me on Instagram at CassPhD. Please also give us a rating and a review on wherever you listen to your podcast. It does help us immensely. Don't forget to like, share, and comment as well. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page and you can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health. <laughs>